0: Shabbat Shalom everyone. Welcome to Beth Adonai. Um, I'm Bobby Smith and I'm going to be your teacher this morning at 10 o'clock. And our subject this morning is going to be Hanukkah because uh, sundown tomorrow begins the feast of Hanukkah, the festival of Hanukkah. So um, it's appropriate to teach on that today I believe. So um, um, before we get started as we always should let's get started with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in Heaven. Father, thank you for bringing us here today for this Shabbat, for the rain that you're giving us today, because rain is a blessing. Thank you for for life, for getting us through this week, for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us this week and the lessons that you've bestowed upon us this week. Father, open our hearts and our minds that we would absorb your word, that we would gain wisdom from your word, and that we would apply your word to our lives. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Alright, so um, Hanukkah. It is a uh, what you would call a traditional feast. It's not one that is mandated in scripture. It was a feast that was uh, dedicated by the rabbis. Based on an event that took place in Jewish history which was a significant event. So is Hanukkah ever mentioned in the Bible? Do we see it anywhere in in the scriptures? The only place that is listed in the scriptures is in the Brit Hadashah or the Apostolic Scriptures or what's known in Christian circles as the New Testament in the book of John. If you read John 22, it says this. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The complete Jewish Bible's version of that verse says, then Hanukkah, or let me me begin again, then came Hanukkah in Jerusalem, it was winter. And then the verse goes on to describe an event with Yeshua in the temple and at Solomon's, Solomon's colonnade which um, I've done teachings on that in the past, where Solomon's colonnade was located in the temple, which was on the east side. And the reason that uh, his apostles congregated there was they were interacted with Yeshua at, at Solomon's colonnade a lot during, during his life, and also it was where they thought he would return when he, uh, when he came back to uh, usher in the, the messianic kingdom. Joseph Shulam comments this. This is especially interesting, this mention of uh, Hanukkah in scripture, because it, it's, it mentions this feast of dedication as a holiday feast in literature, and it's the only place it's listed outside of the book of Maccabees. He says, I am happy that Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament, and the time of year is also mentioned just in order to leave no room for doubt that they were referring to Hanukkah. So what this means is, is that our master, Yeshua, celebrated Hanukkah. So it's very appropriate for us to celebrate Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah wasn't created as a, some may think, as a competition to Christmas because it comes at the same time of year, like the Jewish Christmas. Hanukkah has been around Before Yeshua came, obviously, it began being celebrated in like the year 164 B.C. is when this actually took place. This miracle of Hanukkah is one of the great events in Jewish history. The only miracles singled out by the sages for commemoration by festivals that we honor every year are Hanukkah and Purim. When it occurred, however, it was was not absolutely clear whether a miracle had indeed taken place and if so, what it was. Only through the spiritual perspective of the sages could that be determined. Those connoisseurs of eternal understood the factors underlying the heroics of Jews and the sadism of the Syrians. They knew the inner dynamics of the struggle between Greek culture and Jewish sanctity. In a struggle that began three years before the Hanukkah miracle and continued for more than a generation after it, they knew how to pinpoint the critical events and how to interpret them and which to celebrate and how to celebrate. Secular historians would have interpreted these events differently and certainly proclaimed a different national holiday. Such pundits would have put gaudy markers on trees, on many trees, but the divinely inspired sages saw the forest. You've heard the phrase, see the forest for the trees? Can't see the forest for the trees? The famous miracle of lights, when a one-day supply of pure olive oil burned for eight days, took place three years after the beginning of the Hasmonean Revolt. This is the only miracle that the Talmud, and they note this in Shabbos 21b, mentions in its brief description of the Hanukkah events. So that's the only thing that the, that the Talmud mentions is the oil, the, the miracle of the burning of oil. The al Hasanim liturgy, which is what we pray in, um, on Hanukkah, it's uh, part of the Amidah. It's actually the Thanksgiving part of the Amidah. In fact, I'll read that. Um, most of this information that I'm giving you today, it's, it's, it comes from uh, this book from Art Scroll called Hanukkah. It's history, observance, and sanctity. So that's where most of my information is coming from. And if you ever want to um, follow along in, in liturgy prayers, obviously you have to have a siddur. And this is an um, Art Scroll siddur. And under the section of Amidah, that uh, is the Thanksgiving section of Amidah, which is, which is depending on, there's, there, there was 18 sections to the Amidah. They added one extra section to make it 19 that we as Messianics don't really um, um, recite, the, the one about the heretics. But during the Thanksgiving Moedim, in both the, the festivals of Hanukkah and Purim, you have this extra part, which is called the Al HaNasim, that's added to the, your prayers. And for the miracles, and for the salvation, and for the mighty deeds, and for the victories, and for the battles which you performed for our forefathers in those days at this time. In the days of Matis Yahu, the son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean and his sons, when the wicked Greek kingdom rose up against your people Israel to make them forget your Torah and force them to stray from the laws that you had willed, you in your great mercy stood up for them, in the time of their distress. You fought their battle, judged their claim, and avenged their wrong. You delivered the strong into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few, the impure into the hands of the pure, the wicked into the hands of the righteous, and the malicious into the hands of the diligent students of your Torah. For yourself, you made a great and holy name in your world, and for your people Israel, you worked a great victory. And salvation as this very day. Therefore your children came to the Holy of Holies to your house, cleansed your temple, purified the sight of your holiness, and kindled the lights in the courtyards of your sanctuary. And they established these eight days of Hanukkah to express thanks and praise your great name. So that's the addition to the um, uh, Amidah that we say each day dur- during, uh, during Hanukkah in addition to the the normal prayers that we say when we light the candles of Hanukkah. This al Hasanim liturgy, however, recounts just the festival's origin, which is inserted into the Hanukkah prayers. It tells a different tale than what we read in the Talmud. There, the eight-day miracle of the oil is not even mentioned. If you notice when I read the prayer, the eight-day miracle of the oil was not mentioned. There, the emphasis is on the miracles of the military triumph al hasanim tells how the Syrian Greeks conquered the Jews and sought to wrest them from the Torah and the Commandments and how God came to Israel's defense, enabling them to overcome the strong, the many, the impure, the wicked, and the wanton, and bring about a great victory and salvation. Maharal notes the discrepancy between the Talmud's emphasis on the oil and the liturgy's emphasis on the war. He explains that even at the time of the miracle, it was necessary for a divine intervention to show the victorious Jews and, and their military, that their military triumph had indeed been miraculous. As we read of the Maccabean victories over the Syrian Greeks, we can marvel at their faith in God and their courage in the face of impossible odds. A band of devout Jews defeated one of the superpowers of the day. But one who reads the history without knowing from faith, tradition, and study that God was in their ranks might be forgiven if he wonders. Even in modern times, we have seen mighty armies of apathetic mercenaries defeated by their hands of, by like bands of rebels, fighting for their own homes and to defend the dignity of their wives and children. If guerrillas can defeat huge armies equipped with 20th century armaments, why couldn't an ancient Jewish force do the same against Syrian horsemen with spears without miraculous interventions, what they're they're asking. Surely the triumph was immense, but was it a miracle? Yehuda the Maccabee, who succeeded his father, Matishatu, as the leader of the revolt, was a master tactician as well as a devout and righteous sadiq, Couldn't the victory be attributed to his tactics and the bravery of his men? The sages of the time asked these same questions. Jewish tradition does not proclaim festivals lightly. Communities and individuals have the right and obligation to thank God and celebrate their salvation from danger or death, but only scripture, prophecy, or some other divine message allows us to proclaim that a day has been invested with holiness. For the sages who exalted at the liberation and purification of the temple, but wondered how miraculous it had been, God performed an unmistakable miracle to prove that the entire process had occurred only through his intervention. A lone flask of pure oil was found, still bearing the unbroken seal of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. How did it happen that the Syrian Greeks failed to contaminate it? Why did the Kohen Gadol seal when it had never been the temple practice for him to seal or even supervise the flask of oil appear on this particular flask of oil? It was strange, and it was extraordinary, but still not necessarily miraculous. Then they lit the oil. And it burned, and it burned, and it burned. For eight days it burned until fresh oil could be prepared and brought. That was the undeniable miracle. Oil enough for maybe one day had burnt for eight days. The Jewish sages, trained in perception and refined in spirit, the glow of the menorah was a heavenly answer to all their doubts. Yes, miracles had taken place. Not only for eight days, but throughout the three years that old Matishyahu and then his loyal, vigorous sons fought and defeated the best generals and most daunting forces in King Antiochus could hurl at them. True, similar victories might have been won by a strong right arm of man, but this war had been won by the supreme warrior, Hashem himself. The Talmud speaks of the miracles of oil and that it is that event that our menorah lighting ritual symbolizes. But as our prayers make plain, the entire process leading up to it, the skirmish, the battle, and the onslaught was the primary miracle. We celebrate the oil because it was God's means of showing us what we would otherwise not have known, that it was he who delivered the strong many and wanton into the hands of those who were weak and few, but who, sought, who fought for the sake of God's Torah. The second temple, let me get to that. Um, hopefully this works. There it goes. There's many pictures of the second temple. This was a, one of the few I could get that would come up clear on the, on the uh, PowerPoint for you all to see. This took place in the second temple, obviously, not the first temple. The lesson of oil goes further. Not only did it reveal that a miracle had occurred, it revealed why Israel was worthy of such a phenomenon. As many of the classic commentators write, the structure and service of the tabernacle symbolize a microcosm of all creation. Just as God intended the universe to be a vehicle for people to recognize his holiness and thereby be worthy of his presence, so he commanded Israel to fashion a structure where his presence could rest among them. In the tabernacle itself, there were two vessels that represented the Torah, and this would also be true in the, in the temple the ark and the menorah. The ark contained the tablets of the law, the written Torah given by God. The ark was separated from the physical presence of Israel by the pearl case, which is the uh, curtain. The curtain beyond which no human being was permitted to venture except for the few moments on Yom Kippur when the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, offered incense in the Holy of Holies. From the time the tabernacle was erected, Moses went there to receive commandments and communications from God. He stood outside the parochies and God's voice emanated from the top of the ark. The ark, therefore, symbolized God's communication to Israel by means of the Torah Sheh kitab which is the written Torah. Man has the duty to study the written Torah and master it, but he has neither the right nor the capability to add to it. Only the giver of the Torah can formulate its contents. Very important to understand that only God can modify the written Torah. The menorah too. Represents Torah, but it symbolizes Torah, She, baal, baal, Pe, which is the oral Torah. There's a kind of a negative outlook in our messianic community toward the oral Torah. We tend to um, discount its, its validity in a lot of ways. But there's so many things that we do that follow that oral Torah that we would not do without the oral Torah. It explains things. It gives us, it gives us the, the um, instruction book, if, if you will, to follow so many of the things that we do. And that's 100% true for the Jewish people as well. It's the companion of the written Torah, the part that man can derive, embellish, and in a sense create by using his own diligence and in- intelligence in accord with God-given interpretive principles, this is not to suggest that the oral Torah is the creature of human invention and creativity. The oral Torah was taught to Moses along with the written one, and indeed one could not exist without the other. This is the teaching of the rabbis, that it was handed down, just as the oral Torah was handed down in the, in the, um, in the form of a scroll, the written the I mean, the written Torah was handed down in the form of a scroll. The oral Torah was handed down through tradition. The Torah itself cannot be properly understood, and much of it cannot be understood at all without these explanation, laws, and amplifications that the form the oral Torah, the oral law, gives us. In addition, within the rules of the rabbinic discourse and inquiry, students may question and eludicate which means make clear or explain, and the product of their intellectual inquiry acquires sanctity and the status of Torah, if it's done in the right way. Although the oral law allows man to exercise his creative, inquisitive abilities, its essence was transmitted to God by Moses, or transmitted by God to Moses. For every authentic addition to the store of Torah knowledge Flows from the principles of the God given law. A halactic ruling regarding tomorrow's electronic technology or medical breakthrough will be decided according to the eternal principles of halakha. Consequently, that ruling will be part of the Sinai tradition, the, Sin- the Mount Sinai tradition. This concept is symbolized by the menorah. It was placed outside the parochies where it was accessible to everyone. The Holocaust provides provides that no one need to not even be a Kohen to light it. And it was kindled by means of wicks, oil, and flame that were all produced by man. For this is the essence of the oral law. When man acts as God commands him to, he can create new wisdom that becomes part of the Torah. Remember, Torah is teaching. Just as man's wicks, oil, and flame, when added to the menorah, become a part of the holy temple. The great blossoming of the oral law began with the period of the second temple. It was then that the Mishnah was composed, and the principles principles of scriptural exegesis and Talmudic, Talmudic reasoning were utilized to articulate, derive, and develop the immense body of law and logic that became the Talmud and from which infinite body of rabbinic literature began to flow. Nor was it a coincidence that a new era of Torah knowledge began then. The men of the great assembly, who were the leaders of Israel, knew that the Shekinah, the divine presence, would not rest upon the second temple as it had upon the first. And that after the death of the few living prophets, the age through his emissaries, the people were deeply distressed, not only because they longed for these sacred gifts, but because they realized that the nation's renewed vigor required some form of spiritual grandeur to compensate for the loss of the Shekinah and prophecy. There are no prophets in the Bible that, that uh, we read about after the Second Temple period. So they prayed, insisting that they could not go ahead with the construction of the temple unless the generation was granted an intensified degree of insight into the Torah. Even though the divine presence did not rest on the second temple, nevertheless the main part of Torah, its splendor and its glory, was only in the period of the second temple. For they, the men of the great assembly, did not wish to build it until Hashem, blessed be he, promised that he would reveal to them the secrets of the Torah. This is from the Talmud. If you've ever seen a Talmud and a Mishnah, they are several volumes. It's a lot of reading. It's on a lot of subjects. It's very, very intense. The period's uniqueness as the era of the oral law was foreshadowed in the prophetic vision of Zechariah, in which he was shown that Israel would soon be privileged to erect the temple, says so in Zechariah 4, 11-14. He was shown a menorah that was flanked by two olive trees. What are these two olive trees to the right of the menorah and to its left, asked Zechariah. God answered, these are two people who have been anointed with oil. They are standing with the Lord of all the land. The Talmud in Sanhedrin 24a explains that Zechariah, was shown a vision of a far-off future. Olive oil symbolizes the knowledge of Torah, which provides spiritual illumination, just as oil burning in a lamp gives physical light. The future of Israel, Zechariah was shown, would depend on two sets of scholars who would illuminate their people and the world with their study of teaching of Torah. The scholars of Eretz Yisrael, which is the land of Israel, and the scholars of Babylonia The history of Israel's second commonwealth proceeded from Persian to Greek to Egyptian domination, and after only a 70-year period of independence and power, back to the dominion status under the Roman Empire, and that would eventually destroy the temple. It was not a happy history, but for all its degradation and tragedy, its darkness was relieved by brilliant light, the illumination of Torah coming from Eretz, Israel, the land of Israel, and from Babylonia. Now, Zechariah's menorah takes on a deeper meaning. He foresaw that the joy of the Second Temple era would be the product of the menorah that symbolized the oral law, flanked, expounded, and given fulfillment by the scholars of Israel. The time when the scholars of Israel and Babylonia would be most fruitful was more than two centuries in the future. But Zechariah was shown that they would be the Second Temple era's main accomplishment. There's two Talmuds. There's one that was done in Israel, and there's one that was done in Babylon. The one in Babylon seems to be the one that is most, um, I guess, most cited, most used, because the scholars that were in Babylon were greater than the scholars that had been left in Israel, because Israel was left decimated by the um, exile that they had put on them. The tabernacle parallels the universe, and this is true not only in the symbolism of its structure, but in its goals. The first specific commandment uttered by God in His creation of the universe was, let there be light, Genesis 1-2. The Midrash, the Midbar, Rabbah, teaches that after the, conclusion, the construction of the tabernacle was done and it was enveloped with a holy cloud of divine presence, God gave Moses the first commandment of actual service in Numbers 8-2. When you kindle the lights, the seven lights shall glow. The menorah, which would illuminate Jewish minds and hearts with its spiritual glow by inspiring them to contribute to the riches of the oral law, was the fulfillment of God's commandment that was let there be light in his universe. It was the first thing he desired for his world. For a world without the light of Torah is mired in darkness. Hanukkah is the festival when oil produced a light that illuminated the true nature of a major slice of Jewish history. The war against the Syrian Greeks had been won through miracles. But more, the fact that the struggle was climaxed with the miracle of the oil and that God chose to stamp his salvation with a miracle of light was proof to the leaders of Israel that their struggle was more than a fight for self-respect and freedom. They had been waging the war of light against darkness and bring about the fulfillment of, of God's command of let there be light. They were saving the Torah. Just a note here. Why is it that Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Mishnah? Interesting. The Mishnah was compiled by a gentleman by the name of Rabbi Yehuda the Prince after the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans. It is the first major written redaction of the Jewish oral traditions known as the oral Torah. It is also the first major work of rabbinic literature. The Mishnah was eradicated by Judah the Prince at the beginning of the 3rd century CE in a time when, according to the Talmud, The persecution of the Jews and the passage of time raised the possibility that the details of the oral traditions of the Pharisees from the second temple period, which was from 536 B.C. through 70 C.E., would be forgotten. That's the reason that he did it. That's the reason that he compiled it. Under Rabbi Yehuda's time, the Roman overlords of the land of Israel had made it a crime, often a capital offense, to teach Torah. Such sages as Rabbi Akiva were brutally murdered for maintaining their academies, or their yeshivas. The Romans always feared rebellions in their empire and ruthlessly retaliated if they suspected disobedience. Rabbi Yehuda the prince was the first sage in many decades to succeed in establishing friendly relationships with Rome. Were he to include in the Mishnah that the Jewish people celebrated a festival commemorating commemorating the overthrow of an oppressive foreign kingdom, the Romans could have taken this as a call of insurrection and retaliated with brutal repression. And so the reason why it is not mentioned in the Mishnah. Greece is darkness. A historian with a spiritual perception of our sages would think that darkness is at least an apt characterization of the Syrian-Greek dominion, or domination. Greed, cruelty, oppression, intolerance, impurity, and yes, darkness. Antiochus carried the banner of Greek culture, and he was its missionary. His was a wave of progress, of light, surely not darkness, In his wake came gymnasiums and academies, art, sport, philosophy. He could justly be condemned for 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 the greed which he looted the land of Israel and the temple to finance his ill-conceived foreign adventures and gluttonous Hinduism of his court. He could be abhorred for slaughtering children and elders who refused to bow to his idols and enjoy the flesh of his sacrifices." castigated for his decrees against the the chastity and self-respect of young women and men. But instead of decrying him for such crimes, the sages chose a seemingly rhetorical characterization, darkness, which could hardly be more inept. In analyzing the verse describing the emptiness and desolation of creation's earliest state, the sages teach that it refers to the four nations under whom Israel would endure from the destruction of the first temple until the ultimate redemption. And those four are Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rabbi Simon ben Lakish interpreted the verse with regard to the kingdoms. The phrase, in darkness, refers to the kingdom of Greece. For it darkened the eyes of Israel with its decrees in Barashish Rabbah. It is inappropriate to say that someone created darkness at midnight or prevents a blind man from seeing. The conditions of darkness and sightlessness already existed. Only when someone extinguishes an existing light can can he be accused of plunging his victims into darkness. During times when Babylonia, Persia, and Rome enjoyed their greatest power over Israel, Our source of spiritual light, the temple, did not exist. Those nations thrust Israel into emptiness and the deep abyss of hopelessness, but they did not darken the eyes of Israel. Israel's eyes were darkened because its source of light was gone, the temple. But the temple did stand during Israel's Grecian exile. Not only that, neither Greeks nor Syrian Greeks had any plans to destroy the temple. To the contrary... The people of Acropolis, I hope I said that right, amphitheaters, gymnasia, and the pagan temples of Mount Olympus had no grievance against the existence of Israel's holy temple as the center of Jewish culture. It was not the seat of Jewish culture that galled Greece. It was the kind of culture it represented. Other enemies of Israel might direct their hatred against Jews rather than Judaism, but the nature of Greece required it to do the opposite. The philosophers and the Olympians of Greece vented their rage against Israel's stubborn allegiance to the Torah and its teachings. They wanted to change their culture, and they wouldn't allow it. More than any other monarch of its dynasty, King Ptolemy II of Philadelphia of Egypt rejected Israel, respected Israel, and proved his interest by compelling 70 Jewish sages to translate. The Torah into Greek. The product of this is what we know as the Septuagint. And it made the divine wisdom of the Torah available to all. Antiochus and his Syrian Greeks saw in Judaism, in the Judaism of the land of Israel, nothing more than another culture and one that could not compare to the grandeur of Greece. Antiochus had no interest in changing Jewish methods of agriculture, but Jewish wisdom was something he could not accept because it was in the direct contradiction to his own. His was the wisdom of the body and Torah was the wisdom of the soul. Judaism could not submit to Antiochus and Antiochus would not acknowledge the superiority of the Torah. The exercise of intellect and amassing of wisdom are all commendable, And often essential pursuits, but they are not comparable to the development of the inner wisdom, the godly wisdom of Torah for which man was created. When Yapheth let his sensitivity and knowledge be guided by the presence that rests in the tents of Shem, he too becomes a chariot for God's glory. But if he perceives the Torah as his competitor, he will drag it down to the level of just another ancient literary classic as Ptolemy did, or he will wage war against it as Antiochus did. With the reign of Antiochus and the Syri- Syrian Greeks, a conflict between cultures came to the land of Israel. The Syrian Greek bear- bearers of Japheth's blessing imposed their culture upon Israel and attempted to destroy its allegiance to God. They defiled the temple and chose three commandments as their prime targets. And those three i I've got that here. Oh, that's not it. Should be it right there. Were the Sabbath, Rosh Kadesh, and circumcision. The Sabbath is the eternal witness that in six days God created existence from absolute nothingness, and He rested on the Sabbath. If God is the eternal creator and continuous maintainer of the universe, and if his Torah formed the blueprint and formulation of existence and purpose for creation, then Greek culture would, would, not, would have to stand aside and bow humbly before the tents of Shem. This Antiochus could not accept. The new moon, Rosh Kodesh, is the symbol of man's obligation to instill holiness into time. For when the Sanhedrin proclaims Rosh Kodesh, It makes possible the time-related festivals like Rosh Hashanah and Passover that cannot exist without a calendar. Man's power to proclaim the new moon proves that time, the symbol of nature's tyranny over man, can be subjugated. When the Sanhedrin hallows the new moon, the festivals, the appointed meeting places in time between God and man, enter the calendar and raise it from a record of material pursuit and struggle to a vehicle of holiness. Antiochus had to fight this concept for it meant that culture had value only as a means toward a higher purpose. Circumcision demonstrates that the physical and the spiritual must be intertwined. The body must bear the mark of allegiance to God's covenant, the restraining mark that says, you are a servant, not a master. You are a host to a soul and you must elevate yourself to its exalted level. Beauty and pleasure are not independent virtues. Antiochus says they are. They are regulated by the Torah, or they are nothing. A world without a creator, a calendar, without holiness, a body without restraint. These were the goals of a culture that had accepted the gifts, but not the goals of Noah's blessing to Yapheth. A culture of grace and splendor covering a corrosive emptiness. To this had the potential of Yapla's beauty been pulled down. Small wonder that the Mishnah comments that the primeval darkness signifies Greece, a tragic miscarriage of purpose. Greece should have placed its culture at the service of Shem, used it to help provide a glorious dwelling place for the divine presence. Instead, its splendor became darkness. Of all the periods described as exiles, only that of Greece took place while Israel was in its land and the temple stood. Thus, in a sense, it was the most damaging kind of exile, for it happened when Israel's potential for greatness was at its highest, when it could have illuminated the world, especially since the vaults of the oral Torah had been opened wide. Over this splendor, Antiochus cast his impure pall. This was darkness. And this is why the victory of the Hasmoneans was symbolized both at the time and in our annual commemoration by the flames of the menorah the glow of the torah the spiritual presence that illuminated the tents of shem whether they are on the temple mount or in the humblest jewish home that holds the torah sacred let us not forget that the Hasmoneans had not won their independence when they proclaimed the festival of Hanukkah. The war would go on for a decade after that, so it wasn't like a victory celebration. As the history of Hanukkah shows, the only victory won by Yehuda and his brothers was the right to resume the temple service and to practice their religion. Not only was Antiochus still their ruler, his Syrian troops and Jewish Hellenist lackeys still occupied the land of Israel, and even most of Jerusalem. Many bloody battles and more than a generation would pass before Shimon, the only Maccabee not killed in this war, was proclaimed the ruler over the land of Israel. And more years went by before his son, Yochanan Hakronis, declared himself free of any foreign domination. Nevertheless, the sages declared the festival of Hanukkah after the miracle of the oil. Even though Israel did not enjoy independence or political and military independence, and even after Shimon and Yochanan won independence, our festival remains a commemoration of that event, the miracle of the lights. Why a celebration while still under foreign rule? Because Israel knew that a goal of the Second Temple era was the Kingdom of Torah and the commandments. The rekindling of a small menorah that could banish the darkness of Greece. When that happened, it was time to celebrate. Let the eventual triumphs of the diplomats and generals be greeted with joy, joy, and then consigned to the historians. If this is the significance of Hanukkah, then its proper observance demands an uncommon degree of serious thought into the true nature and lesson of the miracle. Sifas LeMes notes the halakha. That if one is, was unable to light or participate in the lighting of menorah, then he sees someone else's menorah, he may recite the two Hanukkah blessings. One, who did the miracles for our ancestors, and two, the blessing of thanks to God for permitting us to live and to enjoy this new event in our lives. That the first blessing may be recited only upon seeing the Hanukkah flames is quite logical. The flames are a tangible means of publicizing the fact that such miracles occurred. But it is surprising that the Shakanayu blessing may not be recited unless one sees the flames. In case of the other festivals, even if one is placed in a situation where he cannot pray or observe any of the festival commandments, he still recites that blessing in thanks for the mere arrival of the day. He didn't necessarily have to be there. It would appear that Hanukkah is different. Merely being alive on the 25th of Kislev, which is the date of Hanukkah, it's the same every year. I know it floats with a Gregorian calendar, but the Hebrew calendar is the same. That's true with all of our festivals. They have a Hebrew date that they follow. One must see the flame. Remember what it represents. Know that we are grateful for the triumph of Torah's light over Greek's darkness. In that early verse in Genesis that alludes to the four kingdoms, the Torah says, And darkness was on the surface of the deep. Apparently there is a connection between the darkness of Greece and the endless depths of the Roman exile. Rome was epitomized by brute selfish force rather than enlightenment, enlightenment. But the Torah seems to be suggesting that even the unfathomable deep is more chilling if it is blanketed with darkness. The heroic Jews of the Hasmonean era dispelled darkness, with the light of Torah. May we be granted the wisdom and the courage to see the menorah they kindled, to thank God for allowing us to be guided by the divine wisdom that it symbolizes and to its lesson illuminate our road to the final redemption. So that is the introduction to Hanukkah. So now let's dive into the details, and i got 15 minutes to do that. The central events of the Hanukkah story are the miracles of the one day supply of pure olive oil that burned for eight days, and the miracle of victory over the weak, of the weak over the mighty, the few over the many, the pure over the impure, the righteous over the wicked. The triumph was climaxed as the Hanukkah liturgy stresses with the liberation and the purification of the temple after its desecration in contamination by the Syrian-Greek forces of King Antiochus IV. The miracle of lights is commemorated in the ritual observance of Hanukkah. For the sages ordained that every Jewish home attest to the miracle of lighting the menorah night after night for eight nights. And the miraculous victory over the foe is the subject of that prayer, that Al-Hanassim, that I read when we began this. In the popular mind... The celebration of Hanukkah is linked with the establishments of an independent Jewish state under a Hasmonean king, a Jewish state unsurpassed in size, influence, and power since the days of David and Solomon. Indeed, as outlined in the dating of Hanukkah, this view is held by many of the early chroniclers. However, the most detailed and completely documented history of the period is in the Book of Maccabees. If you really want to read about Hanukkah, you read the two Book of Maccabees. Um, Joseph Flavius in Antiquities he also um, had a good bit about uh, Hanukkah although the events of the Hanukkah were surely a catalyst that led to the eventual establishment of a powerful Hasmonean dynasty it was not until many years after the miracle that Israel became an independent powerful nation as we discussed Wh- what then did occur on Hanukkah if independence was still far off why did the sages ordain a festival What is the historic mosaic in which the Hanukkah miracle took place and what happened before it and what happened afterwards? In the book of the later prophets, world history is envisioned as consisting of four epochs, in in which a major power holds sway over Israel, the land of Israel and the Jewish nation. These four kingdoms, as I said, are Babylon, Medea, Persia, Greece, and Edom, Rome. These four periods will be followed by a fifth, in which the world will achieve perfection and the kingdom of God will be established by King Messiah. Rambam explains that the concept of the four kingdoms is not meant to embrace all of mankind's history, but is to include the outline form, the history of the Jewish exile. Therefore, only the kingdoms considered responsible for the exile are mentioned. Other nations, no matter how great they might be, are not named. The era of the second temple is considered part of this exile for several reasons. Most of the Jews did not return to the Holy Land. The temple was not rebuilt to perfection. The Shekinah, the divine presence, was missing, and for for the greater part of this period, the Jews were not autonomous. Babylon, responsible for the first exile, is the first of the four kingdoms. Persia, the successor of Babylon Empire, is considered the second kingdom, and Greece, the third, because it succeeded Persia. Rome is identified as the fourth kingdom for two reasons. Its conquest included the land of Israel, the center of Jewry, and it was directly responsible for the subsequent ex- exile that were still living in the, of the Holy Land. During the time of the Maccabees, although the Jewish community in the land of Israel was considerable, it was by no means the preponderant majority in the land, especially since the majority of the Jews had chosen to stay in Babylon rather than return to their ancestral ancestral home. The heaviest Jewish concentration was in the Jerusalem region, and many towns, especially in the coastal regions, were populated primarily by Gentiles. The Jewish community itself was fragmented by various ideologies, and its members had to have continuous contact with with the heathen world surrounding it. Naturally, one result of such contact contact, then as in all generations was that many weak Jews would try to emulate the Gentile culture surrounding them and to appear more Grecian than even the Greeks. With a parallel weakening of their commitment to Torah and its values, this tendency, tendency known as Hellenism was strongest in the upper strata, strata of society, the rich and those in the employ of the heathen government. It must be remembered that during the Babylonian exile of not too distant past, intermarriage had been rampant in this group, and the observance of the Sabbath and many of the other mitzvahs was surprisingly lax. Only the influence of the personages as Ezra, people like Ezra and ne- Nehemiah, Nica- Nic- and others of their stature, I get in a hurry when I run out of time. The sages of the great assembly had been able to stem the tide and to ensure the continuity of Jewish life at that time. The sages set up safeguards to control and limit the influence of these alien surroundings. Such precautions had not been necessary in the first temple era and during the early years of the second temple. As long as Shimon the Hazik, The last remaining member of the Great Assembly, head of the Sanhedrin and the high priest, was alive. He was able to inspire his people to remain at the spiritual plane to which his predecessors had elevated them. But with his demise, a spiritual regression set in, and the negative influences began to make inroads. Shimon Hazik's successor as head of the Sanhedrin was the illustrious disciple Antigonus. It was during the latter's tenure that the Hellenistic tendency was provided with an ideology to cloak the transgression of the Torah in a garb of respectability. This hearsay in the sheep's clothing was spearheaded by none other than two of Antigonus' own disciples, Zadok and Boethus, whose followers are called the Sadducees and the Bothusians. They declared their belief that there was no retribution for sin nor reward for virtue in the world to come. Indeed, they denied its existence. Learn more and more about the Sadducees the more you dig. The logical conclusion of the philosophy was that one of its first priorities should be the pursuit of self-gratification in this world. They denied both the validity of the oral Torah and, the, the, and its decrees. Consequently, they refused to accept any law not stated explicitly in the Torah. This so-called theology was only a front for the real aim of this movement, total abrogation of the Torah. By denying the authority of the sages, they robbed the Torah of any definitive meaning and gave the individual's transgression of the Torah an aura of legitimacy. Josephus' description of the Sadducees implies that basically they were irreligious. No doubt at this peri- period of history, they swelled the ranks of the Hellenists from which they did not differ to a great extent. There is not enough time to thoroughly re- recreate the history of time, but I do- did want to hit the high points. The main players in this historic event are the Greek kings and the Jewish high priest of the time. Antiochus IV was a man of great ambition hoping to expand his realm as his father had done and planning to impose Greek culture and religion as a unifying force on his multicultural, multi empire. He was vain to the extent that his coinage carried the legend Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, God-Mad Manifest. God-Man Manifest is man, not mad. God-Man Manifest. His character was unstable he was given to extremes of cruelty and generosity. He introduced the barbaric Roman custom of gladiatoral games to Syria. In his private life, he indulged in Hinduist excesses. He would leave his throne at banquets to dance naked with the entertainers. Antiochus brazenly entered the temple in the year 3593, 160 BCE, and despoiled it of its gold and silver. He entered the holy and removed the holy vessels, the gold altar, the menorah, the table of presents, the curtain and the gold ornamentation which with the front of the temple with which the front of the temple was decorated. He appointed high priests that were loyal to him and utilized them as tax collectors and vessels to maintain his dominance over Israel. His soldiers destroyed the houses and walls encompassing and guarding the city of Jerusalem plundering and murdering thousands women and children were taken captive Apollonius his commander of the army army sent to Jerusalem fortified Accra which is a strong fortification near the temple site with Syrian soldiers and traitorous Jews There were so many traitorous Jews you wouldn't believe it until its fall to the Hasmoneans many years later it remained a physical threat to the Jews and a danger to the neighboring temple In their fury against the temple as a symbol of Judaism, the Syrians made 13 breaches of the wall encompassing the temple court. The King Antiochus issued a declaration to his entire realm, but directed primarily at the land of Israel, that it was his intention to unify the diverse ethnic and religious groups in his empire and mold them into one homogeneous nation. Accordingly, all peoples must relinquish their own customs and religions, and conform to the dominant Greek culture and creed. Disobedience would be punished by death. This is what these people were dealing with. A directive was sent expressly to Judea to cease the sacrificial service in the temple. In its place, altars and temples should be set up everywhere for idol worshiping, at which hogs and other clean animals were to be sacrificed. Antiochus commanded that the holy temple should be desecrated and converted into a pagan temple, the observance of Sabbath, the festivals and Kedesh, the dietary laws, the covenant of circumcision, the laws of family purity, and the use of God's name were singled out for prohibition. All copies of the Torah and the holy writings were to be confiscated and burned. Anyone found to possess any of these books would be executed. In general, all the vestiges of Torah and its observance were to be obliterated, even to possess one was punishable by death. Into this setting came Matishahu, the Hamonian son of Yochanan. The the high priest left Jerusalem and settled in Modim to get away from it, a Judean village near Jerusalem. One day, the king's forces appeared and demanded that the townspeople offer a sacrifice in pagan fashion. They attempted to convince the aged and vulnerable Mastishyahu that it, would not, that it would be to his material and social advantage if he would set an example for the people. Were he to comply, he and his sons would be considered the king's friends, an official title that carried with it many privileges and monetary rewards. Mattishahu proudly and publicly declared his determination to remain steadfast to the religion of his forefathers. As he was declaiming his defiance, a renegade Jew, one of these traitors, neared the altar to offer one of these pagan sacrifices. When Matishahu saw this, he, in the tradition of Pincus, was filled with indignation and rage at this blatant desecration of God's name and the Jewish religion and customs by one of its sons. He grabbed the sword, and he killed not only the Jewish renegade, but the Syrian emissaries that had come from the king. Matishahu published a proclamation Whoever is zealous for the Torah and is steadfast in the covenant, let him follow me. Therefore, he and his sons left all their worldly possessions in Modim and fled to the mountains in the Judean desert. Many other local Jews followed his example and joined him to live in the mountain caves where they would be able to practice the Torah's precepts. The king's forces could not disregard this challenge to their authority and they began to seek out these bands of loyal Jews in the mountains. The Jews were exhorted by Matashyahu to resist these Syrian Greeks with force, and 6,000 combat-worthy, loyal Jews gathered under his banter. They began to strike back at the Syrians in in these raids, in these nocturnal raids, nighttime raids, and would demolish their idolatrous altars put up by the pagans. The die had been cast. The revolt had begun. When Masyahu felt that his death was imminent, he said to his sons, Now, my children, be zealous for the Torah and give up your lives for the covenant of your forefathers. He recalled to them the great figures of Jewish history who had put their faith in God and exposed exposed themselves to danger rather than transgress his commandments. Do not fear the threats of a sinful man, for today he is exalted, and tomorrow he will turn to dust, and his plans come to naught. Strengthen yourselves, my children, and be courageous for the sake of Torah. Through it, you will gain honor. Matishahu did not live to see the results of these events that he'd set in motion. He died the following year, but before his death, he gathered his five sons, Shimon, Yehuda, the Maccabee, Eleazar, Yochanan, and Yonasan, and around him, and he urged them to be steadfast and continue the struggle against the Syrians. He bade them to follow the advice of Shimon, Shimon, for he is a sagest man, but he looked to Yehuda as their leader in battle. You can read the details of all this in the book of Maccabees. When Yehuda saw that the Syrian forces had been routed in, in uh, 165 BC and that the Syrians would not mount another offensive in the foreseeable future, he said to his brothers, let us now go up to the temple, cleanse it, and rededicate it. They gathered their entire force and marched to the temple mount. When the brave troops saw the temple desolate and overgrown with vegetation, its gates burned and its altar desecrated, they rent their garments, spread ashes on their heads, and cried and mourned. Yehuda led his men to fight off the garrison quartered in the citadel so as to enable the Kohanim to cleanse and prepare the temple. They cleansed it and removed the idols. They would have offered the daily burnt burnt offering immediately, but the invaders had defiled the altar with a myriad of offerings to, of abominations. The Kohenim were forbidden to use the altar as it had been contaminated. So they took it apart, hid its stones in the Bes Chakmoed, a structure situated in the northern wall of the temple court, and they quickly constructed a new altar in time for use the next morning. They fashioned new utensils of divine service and brought the intense altar or the incense altar into the holy, where the Torah prescribed that they be, and they offered incense that very afternoon. They baked the bread, placed it upon the designated table in the holy of holy, in the holy, hung up the curtain that separated the holy from the holy of Holies. The menorah, however, was gone, apparently stolen during the many lootings of the temple property that had taken place during the Hellenistic and Syrian denom- dem- domination. The Kohenim took seven iron spits, covered them with zinc, crafted them into a makeshift menorah, but where could could they find uncontaminated oil that was required to light this menorah? Upon searching for the oil, they found that oil in the temple had been uncontaminated. They continued searching. However, they found a flask containing enough oil for one night's burning, oil that had curiously been sealed by by a high priest seal. This was surprising, because there was never a requirement that oil flask be sealed, nor was it even the practice to do so. Certainly, the personal involvement of the high priest was unheard of. Not only was the flask found, but its seal was unbroken, indicating that the contents had not been tampered with. With great rejoicing, the Kohanim filled the lamps with this oil and lit the menorah. Miraculously, the oil burned for eight days, that it took to prepare and begin the fresh, uncontaminated oil that was fit for the menorah. The miracle would be eternally celebrated with an eight-day Hanukkah festival, as we do today. Early the next day, which was the t- 25th of Kislev, in the year 165 BCE, 3,597 by our Jewish calendar, they offered the daily burnt offering. Three years to the, day, to the day after the tabernacle service had been interrupted, the altar def- that the altar defiled with pagan sacrifices. The service was renewed with great jubilation and song and music. They celebrated the rededication of the altar for eight days and offered up peace and thanksgiving offerings, recognizing that the miracle had eternal implications. Yehuda and his brethren, together with the Sanhedrin, decreed the festival of Hanukkah to be celebrated for every year from that day forth for eight days. So there is my teaching on the, on the um, miracle of Hanukkah. Thank you, thank you very much. So let's close with a prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King, thank you, Father, for this glorious day, for this Shabbat, for allowing us to come before you on your Shabbat, to worship you, to draw nearer to you, Father, for that's why we're here. Father, be with us as we go through our service today. Draw us nearer to you. Show us your presence in all that we do. And when we go out into the world from here, Father, may anyone that comes in contact with us see you and us in all that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.